Hey there, Laura here. I wanted to mention that for the month of December, we're going to be taking a much needed Christmas break. But don't worry, we will still have new episodes each week. For December, we are jumping back to share a few of the most viewed sessions from the 2020 Church Mental Health Summit. And I cannot wait to share some of these fantastic talks and resources with you. If we go back to the Greek, we will find that the word there is a verb. What we're called to do is a do, it's a verb. So if I were to tell you, as you make fried chicken, you must first bread the chicken. The word bread here is a verb. So if I say bread the chicken, it's a do, breading. If I take the word bread, Put the word make in front of it. The word bread changed. It is no longer a verb. It's a noun. Now it's make bread. It is a product. It is a thing. So what happens when we do the very same thing here? The word disciple, add the word make in front of it, which is not in the original Greek. There is no word make. It just says disciple the nations. But when we add the word make, the word disciple becomes a product. And we focus on the product. Now, by no means am I saying we don't want to do everything we can so that someone would be a follower of Christ. From Hope Main Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. Hey there, Laura here, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. The show today is a flashback to one of the most watched sessions of the 2022 Church Mental Health Summit with Wilson Fang. Now, Wilson, he serves as a full-time minister and educator to those who are global workers, those who are serving in missions cross-culturally. And he is founder of Ministry Personnel Care and serves those who are unable to acquire care due to financial constraints or perhaps even the lack of availability of confidential care. And in his summit talk, he addresses how our worldview and communication differences can either be a barrier or a bridge to sharing Jesus with different cultures. Now, I know I'm a bit different, (laughs) and I don't say that in a self-deprecating way. I think we're all just a little bit odd in our own unique way because we all have unique perspectives, opinions, and approaches to problem solving. For example, my husband and I are absolute complete opposites. I Salt and pepper, like so, so different. We rarely agree on how to do something, which always makes conversations fun. For example, we have been doing some painting the other week, and we had to move some furniture around. And when we moved it, we did the classic one, two, three lift. And we quickly realized that we both think about this differently. One of us lifted on three and the other one lifted after we said three. 
This is just one example because every area or problem we instinctually think the opposite. But we have remained married for 15 years because we respect and value the other person. We don't think we're always right, even though sometimes I feel like that. And I'm sure he does too. But if you work with people, meaning that you support or care for people, then you know, you too know that everyone has a different opinion and it's often different than yours. For example, what I think is funny could be felt as offensive to others. And a great example of this is that a few months ago in my weekly newsletter, I had a GIF or an animated picture of someone yelling, you can't tell me what to do. I thought it was funny and I used it as like an illustration or a, or humor because I was describing that if someone tells me that I can't do something, oh man, I am so determined to do it anyway. And I kind of thought it was funny or a great illustration. But shortly after I sent that email, I received a response saying that they didn't appreciate opening an email and having a picture of someone that looked like they were yelling at them. And I totally didn't even see that, a total different perspective. And I'm, in reading it or in responding to it, I had two choices. I could have been annoyed and defensive saying, oh, that person's just being touchy or label them as sensitive. Or I could have made an effort and see the situation from their perspective. Daily, we are faced with these types of choices. When our efforts and support are not met with the expected response, we can choose to be annoyed and defensive, or we can avoid offense and see it from their perspective. And Wilson Fang brings culture into this conversation. We live in a multicultural world, and our individual worldviews and communication styles can vary broadly. I love how Wilson identifies three worldviews in his talk that can influence how people accept both the gospel and the care we offered. And these three worldviews he goes into, but they are shame and honor cultures, fear and power cultures, and justice or guilt and innocent cultures. And I'm so thankful for the wisdom that he shares about these three worldviews and how these three broad categories can affect how people act and perceive each other. And understanding that these differences require a great deal of humility and patiently working towards understanding each other, especially in care ministry. So here is Wilson Fang. Hi, my name is Wilson Pong. I will be presenting to you a little workshop or a seminar on a topic that I have entitled The Other Two-Thirds of the Gospel, Good News to All People. I grew up in Southeast Asia, went to the U.S. for university and grad schools, and then over a dozen years in clinical practice in mental health. And then in the last 24 years, I've been full-time in Christian ministry. I provide direct care to global workers. Some people call it member care. I find that that term is a little bit less descriptive. So I am part of a, an organization called Ministry Personnel Care. We provide care to folks who are in, in the ministry. And these are people from indigenous pastors, indigenous evangelists, um, music ministry, missionaries. So a whole slew of people that need care. That's basically what I do. Today's presentation is listed in two categories, global health and leadership health. 
When we think about global health, we think that this presentation would be helpful perhaps to two groups. One, it is the Christian care providers. These are people who, as they encounter people in need, they respond from a clinical perspective. There are several clinical counseling centers that are Christian-based. The other group would be your global workers who also provide care as they encounter people in needs. My hope that for this group, folks who are coming under the global health perspective, that this will be helpful to you. From the perspective of leadership health, I hope that this presentation will be helpful to you if you're in leadership of a church, of a counseling ministry, of a mission group, that as you think about those people, how they serve and yet maybe discourage, uh, burned out due to experiencing very little fruit from their labor, perhaps this presentation will be helpful. The other two-thirds of the gospel, the good news to all people. This is my dissertation for my um, one of my doctorate degrees. And it has been several years of work that came about from me pondering about how often the gospel is rejected. What prompts a person to reject gospel? Well, perhaps many may find that the good news just don't appeal to them. They actually find it uh, to be something that they don't want. And you have to ask yourself, this is, this is the good news. Why wouldn't you want the good news? Well, I am going to suggest three reasons. The first, they find that the gospel is being presented by people who are ingenuous. Now, I have here, just as a quick glance, a stack of books. And if you look at a stack of books of people who are already writing, about the sense that many people have that those who represent the church, who represent the gospel, who represent Christ, are disingenuous. It should concern you. The second reason, perhaps, that folks refuse or reject the gospel is that it is being presented in a way that is indicting them. When you think about Job's friends, when they came to him, they meant well. They traveled far. They sat quietly for days on end, just being present with Job in his time of sorrow and crisis. But when it came time to minister to Job, to respond to Job, they indicted him. How often do we find people who say Christians are judges? They come, they judge. And the third reason, perhaps, is that 
they find the gospel not relevant to them. To the first, for those who refuse the gospel because they find that the presenters of the gospel are ingenuous, I like to take some time to just ponder on that. The gospel in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. At the end of Mark and Luke, it is the good news. Some find that it is it is just presented to them because there's an agenda. You're trying to sell me something. You're trying to sell me a philosophy, a belief. You're trying to proselyte. So let's let's just consider what is the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples. How? Baptizing, teaching. Three participles. The word go, a participle. The word baptize, a participle. The word teach, a participle. So the focus is not on these participles. The participles just describe how you are to do this. And what is the this that we're asked to do? In fact, it's not just asked, it's commanded. It's an imperative. There's a verb in there that is the imperative. You must do this. How? By going, by baptizing, by teaching. But what are we asked to do? Well, most people say it's, it's right there. It's make disciples. We are called to make disciples. And therefore, that's the agenda. We're going to go to them and we're going to make them followers of Christ. That can be a problem. If we go back to the original language, if we go back to the Greek, we will find that the word there is a verb. What we're called to do is a do, it's a verb. So if I were to tell you, as you make fried chicken, you must first bread the chicken. The word bread here is a verb. So if I say bread the chicken, it's a do, breading. If I take the word bread, put the word make in front of it, the word bread changed. It is no longer a verb, it's a noun. Now it's make bread. It is a product. It is a thing. Second example, if I told you, table your worries, table your worries. The word table here, verb, a do. But if I add the word make in front of the word table, make table, table is now a noun. So what happens when we do the very same thing here? The word disciple, add the word make in front of it, which is not in the original Greek. There is no word make. It just says disciple the nations. But when we add the word make, the word disciple becomes a product. And we focus on a product. Now, by no means am I saying we don't want to do everything we can so that someone would be a follower of Christ. Sure, we want them to be followers of Christ, but it is not us that make them a follower of Christ. 
We don't do anything to that effect. All we do is we disciple. We walk alongside them. We do life with them. We represent poorly at times. We are a poor reflection of our God. But we try. And that is just what we're asked to do. So as we go about our lives, disciple the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, all that has been taught to us. That is the good news. But when we go to someone and we're saying, but we're trying to make you something, we have an agenda. So how often has it, have you guys experienced where you try to speak to someone and they close the door on you? Perhaps it is because they say, you're trying to sell me something. You're being disingenuous. There's no authenticity here. You don't really care for me. You care about what you're trying to do to me. The second reason, perhaps, is that you're indicting me. I remember George W. Bush once said, too often we judge others by their worst while judging ourselves by our best. Wow. I, I, I think that as we think about what we do, do we really judge others? Should we really judge others? That is, that is the question. We discern when something is wrong, when something it is not according to God, but do we judge the person, condemn them? With that in mind, I like to con you to consider one thing. When we speak to them the gospel of reparation for sin, we must remember that there are many languages out there where the closest translation to the word sin is the word crime. How would you feel if someone came to you and said, I've got good news for you. There is a way out from you being punished for being a criminal. How'd you feel? Perhaps you might say, what crime have I committed? I'm not a criminal. It is very indicting. And it is no wonder people refuse to hear that. The third being irrelevant. C.S. Lewis once said, what we see and hear depends on where we are standing and also on what sort of person we are. Consider this, the Gospels, the good news, there are four of them. Why four? Because they are written to different people. So what we see, what we hear, depends on where we stand and who we are. Given that, this is, this is the dissertation that I, I like to present. Rather than speak in such a way that others re refuse, perhaps we should first speak in such a way that others want to listen. How? Perhaps it is by listening in such a way so that others want to speak to us, hear their story, understand where they come from. And then with genuine compassion, we say, I think we have good news for you. I think I have good news for you. What is this good news? The good news has to address man's predicament. 
what is the person's predicament? Now, you may say, well, the predicament can be many. Uh, the, the troubles they're in, financial, marital, personal issues, whatever their predicament is. The church from the West has always presented the predicament to narrow down to one word, sin. And I argue with that not. We do have a serious problem. But if we go back to the original, if we go back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, God created. And every time he created, for the first six days, he created each part of his creation. He looked and he said, it is good. So, what is the predicament? When we think about the predicament of man, to those of you who are clinicians, you might, you might like this. Our approach as clinicians might be one where we say, let's find the precipitating event, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. What triggered this crisis, this trauma, this distress? When we go to Genesis 1, we say, there it is. Everything was good. God created. And at the end of each time he created, he said, it's good. And then something happened. So we said, aha, we've traced it. It's sin. But I want you to go back to Genesis. God created. It was good. God blessed. Verse 28 of the first chapter. God provided. Verse 29. Then we see that God created man and woman, Genesis 2.25, and they were naked and unashamed. And then verse 6 of chapter 3, we see the fall, the disobedience, the eating of the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And verse 7, right after they ate of the forbidden fruit, what happened? Chapter 3, verse 7, they realized they were naked. They tried to cover up. Verse 8, God entered the garden and they hid. God asked, what's going on? Verse, chapter, uh, verse 10, and they said, we're afraid because we are naked. We are exposed. So we hid. And then God said, how did you come to realize your nakedness? And then Adam responded by saying, it is, it is the woman. So there goes the finger. Not me. It is the woman. And here's the indictment. Not just indicting the woman. Indicting God. It is the woman whom you gave me. This is the, the predicament of man. If we look at the original fall of man, we see three elements. We see sin. The disobedience but we also see shame the shaming of the woman she's the problem actually the attempt to shame God you gave her to me and then we see the other predicament fear before there was no fear they can enter into the presence of God with no fear but after the fall there was fear and they hid Probably one of the better presentations of what I'm uh, presenting to you is in this book, Honor and Shame. It presents that 
In this world, we have three worldviews. There is the worldview that is focused on innocence. The flip side of that is guilt, not as in feeling guilty, but being guilty. So there's the innocence guilt worldview. There's the power fear worldview. And there's the honor shame worldview. With these three worldviews, we make up the globe. The Western world predominantly are a innocence guilt worldview. So from here, we get people saying things like, do the right thing. If you do the wrong thing, own it, move on. Pay recompense, move on. We have other things like do the crime, do the time. That's our worldview from the West. Other parts of the world have a combination of fear-based and shame-based. Those who live in fear and those who have the power and inflict fear. Sometimes the fear is not of another person or people group, but the fear is of the unknown. So you have the people who live with great spiritualism, shamanism, voodooism, where there's great fear. I don't know what I can do, so I go to the witch doctor in fear and ask him, speak on my behalf. That's the power of fear. And the witch doctor, he has the power, he or she. And then there's honor shame. Those who live in honor and those who live in shame. If we understand that the predicament of man, of man is not strictly just that he is guilty of sin, of wrongdoing, but he's struggling also with the shame that comes with it, with the fear that comes with it, we enter now into being able to speak to them. As they open up those doors to us, seldom will you find someone who come to you and say, here's my trouble, I'm a sinner. Seldom. More often you hear someone say, here's my trouble. I'm no good. I, I, I didn't even finish high school. I didn't accomplish much with my life. The shame in there. I'm born crippled. I, I went to prison. Whatever it is. The fear in there. I don't know how to provide for my family. I don't know where the next bowl of rice is going to come from. If we would enter into their predicament. That is what I propose. I'd like to end with sharing with you the prodigal son parable. When the prodigal son came back to the father, why did he come back? Not because he realized he was a sinner. Although he came to that at, a, at some point. But he came back to the father out of fear. He was starving. He was about to die. And what did the father respond to him? Through that opening, out of his son's fear, his father addressed all three, covered his filth, his sin, with the royal robe, gave him back the family signet ring, restored his honor, and then took care of his fear. You're not, you will not be hungry anymore. In fact, you won't be bare feet anymore. Addressing people where they come from will help as you minister to those in need. I hope this time together has been helpful to you. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action, maybe today or, or next week. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care, both for yourself and for others in your church? 
And if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you click that follow button on whatever platform you're listening to. Thank you so much for connecting and listening. I hope you have a fantastic week.